Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 77. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have a very special guest, the talented, the amazing, the charismatic, Mr. Broncar Lee. Before we get to Broncar, though, let's thank our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association, the IJA. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Find about their great products and, of course, their yearly festival. All right, that's enough. I sold so many toys over New Year's and Christmas that I'm set for the year. So drop everything, get ready for Broncar Lee. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 77. My special guest, Mr. Broncar Lee. Welcome, Broncar. Hey, Dan. <laughs> now, I knew you when you lived in the Bay Area, but now you live in Atlanta. Is that correct? That's correct, brother. And since I saw you last, you've had two kids. It's been quite a while. How old are the kids now? Uh, we got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, Elijah and Nico. And how's fatherhood like juggling? Are they comparable? Do you have two kids now? Is it, uh, like they say, a juggling act? Oh, man. I'll tell you, like, bounce juggling nine balls has no comparison to juggling two tiny humans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure you're going to be a great dad. You've always been a really great representative of juggling and performing, and I'm really happy you're on the podcast today. Let's start way back, way back in the beginning. Were you born Broncar Lee, or is that a name you picked up along the way? Yeah, it's actually a great question. It's my mom's maiden name. Uh, Broncar is a family name. It's uh, Scandinavian, and it, it kind of it was my middle name. And then in high school, I had a, kind of a, a coming of age moment where I changed uh, from my first name to my middle name, and I haven't looked back. Now, your first name was Brian. Is that correct? Am yeah. I, Brian Broncarly. Now, that's a great, that's a great that's uh, showbiz name. I'm sure a lot of people mispronounce it. Have you ever been introduced as Broccoli? Oh, yeah. Broccoli, <laughs> Bonker, Bronker. I would, the percentage, the ratio for times that it's been pronounced correctly is significantly less than times it has been pronounced incorrectly. And have you ever met another Broncar, or are you unique in that aspect? Nope, that's it. Well, you are the only one, one of a kind, that's for sure. Thanks, brother. So let's start on the journey of how you became Broncar Lee. Like one of your first things that kind of defined you, I know we talked about this when you were down here, was that you had ADHD as a kid. How did that kind of start your life off and what have you learned by having ADHD? Yeah, I'd say that's been a, a big driving force in my life. I was kind of diagnosed with that at a, at a pretty young age and then it, it just... I wouldn't say it, I, it defined me, but it definitely played a role in, in traditional education. I think a lot of, especially young men, think are, are just wired uh, to not sit in a classroom for four or five, six hours at a time throughout the day. So uh, a lot of us kind of have the urges to move around. And for me, I've been a, a very kinesthetic learner and very hands-on and a total immersive type of learner, which I really struggled with when I was a kid because... I was being told how I was supposed to learn in the educational system that I was a part of. And I'm not poo-pooing the educational system I was a part of because I, I am very grateful to have received, you know, education just in general. Uh, some places in the world don't have that. But I, as an adult, I figured out how I learn as, as a human being. And the way that I learn as a human is a much different approach than the way that I was taught in the traditional uh, uh, schooling that I, that I went through. And do you think that sort of led you to sort of alternative activities such as juggling? 
that you didn't feel like you fit in the regular school curriculum? Yeah, definitely. Most definitely. And I, I would say juggling specifically, well, juggling for me was an extension of drumming, which was my first instrument that I that I learned. So uh, playing drums was such a, a physical, self-expressive outlet to plug into. And when I discovered juggling, it was an extension of drumming for me. And as soon as I discovered juggling, it was like, I mean, life, life began. And I, I'll never forget when I learned, I was actually on campus at the University of Georgia, and I saw a guy juggling in the park, and his name was Andy McIntyre, and he actually took time to show me what he was doing and deconstructed. And I had never really seen juggling in person and, and uh, like that. And as soon as he showed me, something clicked, and it was an obsession. And literally that night, I went home, I got three tennis balls, and I stayed up all night. All night long, I stayed up juggling, Dan. And the next morning, my dad woke up to go to, he was a professor at uh, University of Georgia, a biochemistry department. He woke up to go to work the next morning at like 6.30, walked outside. I'm juggling in the carport. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, dad, I learned how to juggle last night. And I stayed up all night. My eyes were probably bugging out at that point. But, but that was something happened. There was an obsession in that moment and there was something with the crossing of the hemispheres and the eye hand coordination and the rhythm and the total requirement of extreme focus that I fell in love with. Now, were you attracted to other physical activities? Because I also know as a teenager, and people would be surprised to know this, but you had quite a few uh, weight issues. You were a lot heavier. So were you attracted to regular sports or did juggling just tick all the boxes as this unique activity, even though you weren't really that physically attracted to activities uh, sporting-like? Yeah, well, that was, uh, I, I was, I was, I was very overweight as a young adult in high school. I was about 275 pounds, which is um, about a hundred pounds more uh, than I am now. Well, I should say about, about 90 pounds more than I am now. Cause I put on a few pounds as a dad, <laughs> sure. uh, but <laughs> the dad body, uh, yeah. but yeah, exactly. The dad bot for sure. But, but I, I got pretty overweight. That was actually came that stemmed from, you know, a place of more depression. I wasn't officially diagnosed with depression, but I was definitely at a very low point in, uh, in my high school days and put on a lot of weight, drank excessively, ate excessively, didn't play sports, didn't apply myself to, to school and spiraled down a, a pretty negative hole. And I found my way to express myself through alcohol, drugs, and food. And I got really good at it. I mean, I was really good at it. I just didn't know where to plug my energy into. And it's kind of like one of my favorite life coaches, Brian Poyer, always said, how you do anything is how you do everything. And for me, I'm totally immersive with every project that I get into, every relationship that I'm into. It's like I, I jump in and I immerse myself in it. And that just happened to be where I plugged in. I, I wasn't seeing the world in, in a positive way. Uh, so I went down that hole and, and juggling actually came to me a few years later when I had come out of that hole and I had, I had found some positive ways to express myself and channel that energy. And juggling came to me at that time. So it was like the perfect timing when it came into my life. It was just a, uh, an outlet for me to plug into. And was music the first thing that you found that you could express yourself? Because I know even when you approached juggling, you kind of approached it as a musician, as a, a beatboxer like you said, all focused on the rhythm. When did drumming and music come into your life? Yeah, drumming and music came in. Well, music came in at a young age. I was actually, <laughs> I was actually forced, uh, lovingly forced. I, 
lovingly forced by my uh, by my parents to play violin. I was Suzuki trained violin when I was very young. And that was just a terrible idea right out of the gate. It was very formal training and not knocking Suzuki because that definitely is a, is a, is a powerful tool for, for many people. But it was not a good fit for me. Uh, my memories were trying to just stand still in one place with my feet in a particular position. That was the challenge. I think we worked on that for about two years uh, before we gave up. But I was Suzuki trained when I was a kid on violin. And then it was uh, several years later when I was actually in third grade that I discovered drumming. And uh, my, my, my best friend at the time, Ben Hale, who I still keep in touch with, uh, he uh, introduced me to the drums. And I sat down at the drum kit and I fell in love. And then I saved my money, did my chores, all that fun stuff, got myself a kit and started playing. And throughout high school, that was um, probably the most positive outlet that I could channel into was, was drumming. And, uh, and I, I have great memories of, of, of working through that. And actually, as I continued, when I finally started seeing the, the good in the world again, uh, I used drumming as an outlet and I would lock myself in a room and I would just play for hours and hours and I would sweat and I would detox and I would just drink water. I didn't know at the time what I was doing that I was actually detoxing, but I, that's exactly what I was doing. Just burning the, burning the calories out, working the sweat out, working all that stuff out. And so drumming for me was, uh, was a therapeutic release uh, to, to get that energy out. Now, as a kid, did you choose the violin or was the violin chosen for you? Oh yeah, it was definitely chosen for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, cause that's that's even worse, I guess. It's like you're learning an instrument not of your choosing, in a way that doesn't really fit your learning modality. So you really had to discover this all on your own, how you learn and what's best for you as a, as a learner. Because you've learned now to play forty two instruments. Is that accurate? Forty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And counting, it's actually somewhere around fifty at this point. But um, that's spanning from very simple instruments um, like djembe or cajon or different drumming are not simple, but less complicated, I would say, uh, instruments to more complicated like saxophone. You know, I play, uh, you know, very tenor, alto, soprano, a little bit of soprano, um, and then a lot of different uh, woodwinds of uh, flute, traditional flute, then sotary flute, pan flutes, a lot of different woodwind type things. And then also some stringed instruments, guitar, acoustic uh, six string guitar. And then current favorite instrument is the bass guitar. That's been my by my obsession uh, recently. And there's one I've seen you play uh, that's quite unique and you seem to get quite into it. Am I correct? Is it called the hang drum? Is that the correct name for it? The hang drum? Yeah, so it's technically, it's called a hand pan. Oh, hand pan. Uh, which is a derivative, yeah, which is a derivative from the hung, H-A-N-G, uh, but it's a Swiss instrument that was designed by, uh, by a couple of Swiss people and they designed this instrument called the hung which came from the derivative of the steel drums used in a lot of Caribbean music, but they designed it to where you could play it with your hands and they made it so that they could do sound healing with it. And then it became popularized over the last five, six, seven years here in the States. And uh, there've been a few different makers pop up that are making kind of well, prototypes of sort of the hung. And it's been referred to and, and, and renamed the hand pan, which I personally don't like the name hand pan. So I call it the metallic echo drum is because uh, one day I got off stage. I was doing a performing at a, at a uh, conference, uh, a healthcare conference uh, with my soul brother, uh, rhythmic soul brother, Aaron, and our show uh, Collision of Rhythm. And we got off stage and I played the, the hand pan on stage. And this engineer came up to me and he said, 
what was the name of that really cool metallic echo drum? And I was like, <laughs> metallic echo drum. And then I kind of gave it the acronym. It's MED. So it's like med. And so you, I, I say, you got to get your sound healing with your meds, your metallic echo drum. So that's uh, became kind of a personal, uh, personalized name for me. I think the instrument people sort of think of you most associated with is your mouth because you're a fantastic beatboxer and you combine the beatboxing with juggling. At what age did you learn to beatbox and who inspired you to do that? Yeah, so I was inspired by Bobby McFerrin. And, you know, that was right around that same age when I learned to juggle. You know, I was, I was in my early 20s and I, uh, I saw Bobby McFerrin. I was originally introduced to him in, in third grade by, uh, by my teacher, Miss Jackson. And I heard Don't Worry, Be Happy. And it was a great song and it totally inspired me. Uh, but then years later, in my early 20s, I saw a PBS special of Bobby McFerrin and him doing a live show. And when I saw his live show, he's an amazing vocalist. He's got a, you know, a really solid four octave range and he sings great. He has a little bit of beatboxing. He does so much cool stuff with his voice. And when I saw him, I respected his technical proficiency. But what I really, really, really admired about him was the way he used that skill as a tool to build relationships with the audience, to build a bridge of relatability and connectivity with the audience. He would take his, his core fundamental skill of singing and uh, vocal art, and then he would improvise with the audience and create moments with them. And I saw that, and I said, that's what I want to do right there. So he was, Bobby McFerrin was my original inspiration behind the art. And how'd you get into performing? So you're in college. What did you study in college? And how do you see your life uh, sort of planning out and what was the big change that got you into performing? Yeah, well, college for me, I actually dropped out of high school. Uh, and then I went back several years later, and I had to finish one exam uh, that I didn't ever uh, pass. And I basically crammed, studied that, and went back and graduated, got my official uh, certificate. And then I went to college just for fun. I wasn't going to get a, a degree or a paper or any of that stuff, uh, any certifications. I just went and studied ethnomusicology. I studied psychology. Uh, I even took a couple of math classes. I just went to learn for fun. And it was, again, around that same age. So I, it was a very short stint of college just for only for, for a hobby, just, just, to, just to learn myself. But the way I got into performance was, you know, I started drumming in bands in my hometown, Athens, Georgia. And I started drumming in bands in Athens and everything from rock and funk and jazz and electronic and I mean all all types of music with uh, with drumming and uh, even did a lot of street performance there and that kind of catalyzed things I would go out on the corner and I would uh, street perform I'd set up my drums and I would basically just play music after uh, big football games University of Georgia football is a, a big deal and so I would drum on the corner and then I just built my connections through music and as a drummer in Athens. And then actually I met my wife, current wife now, Cindy, uh, we've been together for almost 19 years. Uh, when I met her, I auditioned as a drummer for her band and got the gig and was playing with her. And then her violinist turned out to be a really great juggler. And when I learned to juggle, I came in, I was all excited, you know, at one of the rehearsals and I started juggling. He was like, oh yeah, I'm a juggler. And I was like, no way. And he was like a seven balls, five clubs, like really good and a really good juggler. And so we started juggling together, and then we did a show together for a deaf children's camp. It was uh, Camp Dove, and, and we did this performance, and I, was, I had barely learned to juggle. And I somehow knew how to choreograph 
like out of the gates. I was like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. <laughs> and, and Curtis, Curtis was a great juggler. And I was like very, very beginner. And, uh, and so we had, we worked out this kind of clown and August thing, just natural routine. And then we did it. We performed for this um, camp dove and I fell in love with it. And I was like, what are we going to do with this? And my mom, who's still to this day, one of my best friends, we talk all the time. She's an amazing influence, uh, actually raised me for the first part of my life as a single parent and just been such a beacon of light and love for me. My mom found the San Francisco Circus Center and said, the circus is the place for you. And I was like, the circus is the place for me. <laughs> so I auditioned and, and got the gig out there thanks to a couple of friends. I had a friend that I had taken a clown workshop with uh, here uh, by the name of Bill Fortune. And Bill has been a very good friend of mine, a mentor, dear friend for now a couple of decades. He actually had a connection to Jeff Raz at the San Francisco Circus Center. And I applied, I got accepted. And then I told my girlfriend at the time, Cindy, who's now my wife, I told uh, her parents that we were going to be packing up the minivan, moving across the country to San Francisco so that I could attend Clown College. <laughs> How'd that go over? Was that a, a popular idea in Athens, Georgia? Was that a, a career choice that they could get behind? Yeah, not, not so much. No, not so much. But uh, they've been very supportive and uh, very understanding uh, the whole time. And they're you know, really dear people. But yeah, at the time, it was uh, it was a bit of a, a bit of a shock. Uh, you definitely left field, to say the least. And your own father really wasn't in the picture. Because I remember I met you up here. And at a certain point, you had this sort of very deep uh, experience because you reconnected with your father. After how many years was the separation? Yeah, so I actually, um, I had never met him. Oh, okay. Uh, I met him, yeah, so I met him for the first time when I was 28 years old. And uh, it was just, you know, as, as in, you know, life is just complicated. It's, it's uh, very, you know, there's more moving parts than the self. For a lot of years, I held resentment towards him until I actually met him and started to uncover more of the truths around things. And uh, basically, when I was 28, I had an amazing life coach, Brian Poyer, who's a still a good friend of mine. And he found out I hadn't met my biological father. And he, within 24 hours, had located, uh, thanks to the internet, had located where he was and, and, his, and his phone number. So I... Hmm reached out to him. And uh, I got to say that was probably the most intense phone call uh, I've ever made in my life. Called him up and said, Hey, I'm Broncar Lee and, and I'm looking for my dad. And it was a pretty intense conversation. And we ended up meeting at uh, Pete's Coffee in 4th Street in Berkeley. And I, uh, I lived 30 minutes away from this guy. Uh, and I had been raised almost 3,000 miles away from this guy. So we connected and we have had a complicated but very positive relationship since then. And that was 12 years ago. And what was his profession? Was he involved in the arts at all? Or did you have any kind of like sort nope. of like you thought, wow, I'm really a lot like him, even though I wasn't raised by him? Or was there no similarities? Well, no, no, I'm, I'm a lot like him, uh, but he's not involved with the arts at all. He's, uh, he's in real estate and, and um, properties and things like that. Uh, property management and, and, and different things. But I would say at the core of like kind of mannerisms and kind of fundamental energy and genetics, there's definitely a lot of similarities. Uh, we look 
very much alike <laughs> and, uh, and, and act, uh, carry ourselves very much alike as far as tonality, musicality of how we speak and phrase and, uh, and move and, and, and walk and gesture and things like that. So uh, a lot of similarities. He just slugged into a different avenue than me. <laughs> well, even though it's complicated, I'm glad he's part of your life and that you guys have reconnected. Let's get back to your experience at the circus school. Was there someone there who was a juggling teacher? Uh, did you focus on juggling in that in that time of, of your life, or were you more interested in the clowning aspects of what you could learn there? Yeah, definitely both. Uh, both of them. I would say a really huge influence for me at the Circus Center was Judy Finelli, mm-hmm. and Judy just had such a positive energy. It was the first year she had come back to the school, and so um, she had a, a huge impact on me. She did a lot of coaching a lot of personal coaching as well as group coaching with me. She was definitely a, a really big inspiration on, on my life. I would say also uh, Jeff Raz, you know, showed me, he, he had some, um, uh, you know, amazing facilitator and, and, and clown and character and, and all of that. And he also had a depth of knowledge with his object manipulation and juggling and the, the correspondence and relationship to uh, music as well, because he, he also plays music. So those were a couple of big influences on me. And then also I would say, I'm dropping his name right now. He's ultra famous. Michael Motion or mm-hmm. Moshe, uh, however you want to say it. I think it's Motion. Michael Motion. Yeah. Michael Motion. Yeah. Depends on what kind of what part of the world you're in, I guess. Mm. Uh, <laughs> okay. His um, classic triangle bounce juggling act was a big inspiration on me, and also Victor Key with Cirque du Soleil with his dancing and acrobatics fused with juggling. I was really attracted to all of these ways that people were kind of cross-pollinating different art forms like you know for for michael motion it was the rhythm and the shape of that with the juggling uh and then for like victor key it was obviously like the dance and the acrobatics blended with juggling and so i i really liked those types of presentations and so that was a big inspiration on how i kind of birthed my core what i would say the core of my professional career has been kind of revolving around the cross-pollination of beatboxing, drumming, and uh, and juggling. Because she created like a bounce, I don't call it a pad, it was like a wooden box that she used to bounce, and also gave you a good bounce, but also created a very sort of positive sound. Uh, How did you develop that box, and was that sort of a desire to have something that was uniform everywhere you went that you could bounce on, or was it for the sound? Yeah, great question. Both. So I would say I really wanted to get the sound and I worked really hard. I built about 30 or 35 models of that thing, man, before I got the one down that was acoustically sound and also gave the proper amount of rebound, but also wasn't too big so that I could travel because I was you know, flying a lot, avoiding a lot of shipping. It took a long time to, to arrive at the place that it is now, which is a very simple design, but incredibly complicated to arrive at that point as, as we know anybody that's listening now it's like if you're a, a performer the easier something looks the harder it was to get there you then have to go back and like wreck it to make it look hard but yeah so i, I built a lot of different versions of it and, and I, I really played with midi triggers i played with different surfaces i played with surfaces that light up i played with surfaces that have different tones and different melodic uh you know timbres and things like that and then I arrived at my core place, which is a, a single drum that is uh, quite a different technique in bouncing from if you have like a marble slab or a really beautiful large concrete surface or marble surface that you're able to work on. It's a quite a different technique. There's not a lot of room for double bounces or uh, lift bouncing um, or passive kind of bouncing. It's very active and very force-driven content, I guess. I know you do a lot of force bouncing, especially uh, five, six, seven. 
What's your record for the five ball force bounce? Wasn't it like over half an hour or something? What was your record? It was like an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> of the five yeah, ball force bounce. That, <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, five ball force bounce. Hour, hour and 15. And uh, yeah, that was, that was crazy. Yeah, that was definitely, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> and do you mind giving us an example, a little bit of the type of beatboxing you would do while you did your bounce juggling? Can you give us a little bit of a, a vocal display, if you don't mind? Yeah. And, and we actually <laughs> okay. just, yeah, and we actually just, uh, just released a video. It's a video with uh, my partner, Aaron, with Collision of Rhythm, and it's a Jingle Bells video, and it's him playing four mallet marimba on his electronic marimba and me doing a uh, five ball force bounce juggle with, uh, with that beatboxing. So we just released that. So that's a, that's a fun one to check out for, uh, for, for listeners and yourself. Yeah, you have a great YouTube channel. There's a lot of ways people can watch you. And at the end of the video, end of the podcast, we'll make sure to give people some contacts where they can search your uh, your shows and your videos and also your products. Because as we get further on in your career, uh, you get into keynote speaking and writing. So let's go into the performing aspect of your career. Tell me about this job you had touring Europe as a ringmaster. It was quite a established circus. What was the name of the circus and how'd you get the gig and where'd you go? Yeah, it was uh, Circus Monty, and it was an amazing experience. I actually, the auditions were held at the San Francisco Circus Center where I studied. And so I got that contract, went to Europe, toured for a year. We did 300 shows, 51 cities. Uh, It was all in Switzerland. So toured, I'd say, one of the most beautiful countries in the world, in, in my opinion, and lived in a caravan and did these tent shows. We built up the tent. We tore it down. We did a lot of hands-on work. It was an incredible experience. My job was I was the ringmaster of the circus and I actually created my own rhythmic language that was a cross-pollination of beatboxing and Swiss German, Schweizerdeutsch. And I I created this gibberish rhythmic Swiss German uh, language and I would basically ran the circus as the ringmaster of the show. And it was a, an incredible experience. Saw some beautiful parts of the world, did 10 shows a week. You know, you kind of finish that and you're like, okay, this is, this is what I do now. Uh, <laughs> but it was an incredible learning experience. That was a major, major growth, uh, growth opportunity. Yeah, I think I met you around the time you came back to the Bay Area and you were trying to get more into the sort of variety of different types of jobs, available performers. You were working on your act and increasing the amount of time you had because... At a certain point, now you, I know you wanted to do cruise ships, and so you had to develop a good, solid hour of material. What was your experience working cruise ships like? Because I know you did quite those for quite a while, but I think at the end, you got kind of burnt out on them. What was your feeling about cruise ships? That's all accurate, because with Circus Monty, even though I was very engaged with the entire production, I had one feature piece where I did a beatboxing piece for seven or eight minutes. And it's like, there's a big difference between doing seven minutes of wow versus holding the attention of an audience and really working, you know, an hour uh, by yourself. And uh, that is about the time that that you and I connected. And I received some great mentorship from you on how to sculpt that and some uh, comedy writing and, and how to, you know, really bring the, the, the presentational skills in the lyrical sense, spoken word and storytelling and things like that which has been uh, an ongoing learning process for me still to this day, very much. But there was a you know, big difference there. And when I jumped into, uh, I did you know, some street performing in the, in the Bay Area, you know, Pier 39 and Scotty Melter and the whole crew and you know, sort of amazing people out there. But that was a huge transition. And then when I 
I got a gig with Disney actually on their cruise ship. And it was one of those moments for the listeners who, you know, may have had some fear around auditioning or which we all have. Right. I mean, I, I know every time I go to an audition, it's like, all right, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I fast enough? Am I enough? But I took this kind of leap of faith moment and flew down to Orlando to do eight minutes at the Orlando Comedy Club as an audition for Disney Cruise Lines. And I ended up getting the gig. I definitely attribute that to having just a unique product with the cross-pollination, again, of the beatboxing and the drumming and the juggling, because I've never been the greatest beatboxer or the greatest juggler or the greatest drummer, but I'm the greatest broncar cross-pollination combination of all those things. So I got that gig with Disney, and then I went out on the waters, and it was much more demanding from a content perspective than I had thought. It actually, we have to, the requirements were you have to come in and you have to have an amazing theater show or, or, or family show with uh, all ages. You're doing on average 45 to 60 minutes um, of that. And then you also have to have a separate 30 or 40 minute show for the adults that you do in the comedy club. And so uh, it was quite demanding as far as having a breadth of um, content that was able to work in different venues for different demographics and different uh, ages of people. But that was an amazing learning experience because it really forced me to stretch and, uh, and reach more and more and more. And that's when I got really inspired to obviously work on my storytelling and my comedy, my audience interaction, also to expand upon my vocabulary and variety of skills that I was presenting from a musical perspective. So while I was also cultivating all of those other skills, on the performance side, I was also doing the, the musical thing. And so I, that's when I started picking up saxophone, picking up flutes, harmonica, a lot of different instruments that gave a nice variety to, uh, to, the, to the performance. So that was a, a huge, 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 huge growth, uh, growth opportunity. Yeah, the Disney ships, people, uh, if you're th people are interested in working them, they usually want an adult show, which of course is Disney adult. It's not like a, an R-rated show. It's just geared towards adults. They want a family show, and they also have to have a show that fits into their large theater. So it's about 75 minutes uh, of material. That you, at least you, that you need to have there. Now, I learned a lot by teaching you because uh, you, you taught me a very valuable lesson in that I was trying to make you funny in the way that I'm funny, meaning jokes, like writing jokes. And you had a more of a physicality, like a more of a, an organic comedy that came more situationally. And you were getting laughs, and I kept thinking, you know, you should be getting laughs this way with jokes, that getting laughs the way you're getting laughs aren't, isn't the same. But then I realized, wait a minute, funny is funny and I should be pushing you more in the direction that's organic for you. I think that was a word you used a lot was organic or connection or, or did it, did it resonate? I remember you used that like, did it yeah. resonate with you? Cause you're all about more of an organic approach to your performing. Well, I think I was trying to force you in a direction that worked for me, but you could tell just in instinctively that it wasn't going to work for you. So uh, mm -hmm. teaching you was mm -hmm. a big, big help for me as well in my teaching because you're very sincere and very, sort of focus on, on your direction. What's what Broncar yeah. does, which I think I've always admired. And now I also know that Thanks. after the cruises, <laughs> yeah, if you want to, yeah, there's a little bit of flattery for you. So if you want to yeah. accept that. <laughs> but I know after the cruises, you got involved and started doing fairs. So you do certainly had mm -hmm. that breadth of, of experience in the, in the juggling community of working these different environments. So what did you sort of take away from doing fairs? And what was that experience like? Oh, man. I mean, another fantastic learning experience. It's just, 
fair. I did a ton of county fairs and state fairs and it's the grind, man. You know, you're out there, you know, it is performance. You are performing and you are getting, I think with performance, one of the most challenging skills to cultivate is the skill of presenting the thing. Like you could be a great acrobat or you can be a great storyteller or you can be a great whatever it is, but to actually do it when you're on stage with the lights on, you got the stage, you have the audience, that's a different skill that has to be cultivated. And you've got to log your, your time in that environment. And it's a very tricky environment to simulate, right? So with, um, you take a technical skill like saxophone, you can sit in your room at home and you can practice your scales and you can set your metronome and you're safe and it's all good. But to practice the skill of performance and facilitation, you can only do that by like, being vulnerable and being exposed and being on the platform. And uh, so fairs really did that for me. It just gave me like minutes on stage. It's like, you know, I'm gathering a crowd three or four times a day. I'm performing for that crowd three or four times a day. And I'm talking to people afterwards three or four times a day. And you're doing that for five or 10 or 15 days in a row. And so you're just logging time. You're getting, your minutes are racking up with just time in front of people presenting stuff. So I found that to be a really powerful tool because I was able to, basically my little algorithm or process is to, after I do a show, I review that show. So maybe I'll record it and then I'll review it. And then what I'll do, either I can, I can actually physically record it with a video camera and then review it by watching it. Or I can just review it in my mind and just meditate on it. But, uh, and then I'll, I'll either say, okay, this was great. I'm going to recreate that. Or this was, this was not what I thought it was going to be. I'm going to have to now recalibrate. So it's a recreate or recalibrate. And that's what I look at. And so with doing, you know, three or four shows a day, you're able to make micro or macro adjustments like very quickly, because then you're going to have another show in an hour, you know, or the next day. And so, and then you can try new things out. So just trial and error, having that opportunity to test things out was a, a very, uh, fantastic opportunity and you always struck me as someone who wants to motivate who wants to teach and share and, and and have people experience what you're experiencing as a growth experience uh when did the motivational speaking come in did that sort of come in organically or was there part of the the, the plan to always go into speaking eventually yeah that's a great question bro so you know i originally started off what i would say the, the birth of my performance career was my early 20s i would do these self-expressions workshops and basically what I would do is I would come into a high school or a middle school or an elementary school. I would do a, an assembly show for the, for the youth. And then I would offer self-expressions workshops where we would show up and I'd bring, you know, 20 or 30 drums. We'd do drumming together. We'd do beatboxing, body percussions, drumming on buckets, all kinds of stuff. And that was a big passion for me then was empowering people through music and also doing it in a way where, uh, which is another thing that attracted me so much to beatboxing or vocal percussion was that we don't need any external instruments. So if you're performing for people who either don't have access to those, can't afford it for whatever reason, they can use their voice as an instrument or their body as an instrument. So that's what attracted me to it so much was its immediacy to create that bridge of relatability, that connection to them through the voice, right? And so I originally got into that then I got swept away in more traditional entertainment. And then I came back to that actually and became more of a keynote speaker. And that would have been when I was still in Los Angeles. So we moved from the Bay Area, from uh, the San Fran Bay Area, down to LA, where I met some incredible people, had some wonderful experiences. Yeah, the Tonight Show happened there. And 
had a show uh, at the Ricardo Montalban Theater for a pretty awesome run and just had some amazing experiences. Did a TED and, a, and a great stuff. And uh, from there, I actually met an individual named Dan Thurman. And Dan Thurman is a, a, a fantastic uh, juggler, acrobat, and keynote speaker. And when we connected through a mutual friend, he actually brought me and my partner, Aaron, with our Collision of Rhythm performance to open this National Speakers Association, NSA, National Speakers Association conference in San Diego. And when we went to that, we were, we were brought in to do the do an opening entertainment piece uh, where we do drumming and tap dancing and juggling and beatboxing and all that stuff. And we did that. And then I, I met this amazing group of, uh, of keynote speakers, which I didn't even know was really a thing. I didn't know it really existed. I mean, I know like past uh, presidents and uh, famous college football coaches went and gave talks and stuff, but I didn't know that there was an entire industry built around keynote speaking. So I delved into that and was brought in uh, under the wings of my good friend, Dan Thurman, who mentored me very consistently and really taught me how to, I think, liberate myself and bring a lot of my different skills to the table and package them in a way that would captivate now an audience of, of professionals and an audience of adults that were in a conference environment that were there to learn. So my basically what I did through that process was, because there's a lot of performers who want to go into keynoting. A lot of reasons I, I think for that that I've heard is because the money is very good there. And it is, it's very good. But the thing is, is it's a completely different skill set. Again, it's, it's totally different than traditional entertainment performing. And what I did was I found that, I'm not saying that there aren't skills that are transferable because every new skill that we acquire as adults uh, or kids or anything is a natural next iteration of skills that we've already acquired. So it's never starting from scratch. It's always uh, building upon the compound effect, building upon those skills uh, that we've already acquired, uh, whether it's mechanical or emotional or psychological, whatever it is. And so for this, there were definitely performance skills that came in there. But what I really had to do was to set all of my quote unquote entertainment chops aside and say, okay, what is my content? And what is the core message uh, that I'm delivering? And then what I did was I, I have all of my performance pieces, uh, my tricks or my songs or my you know, musical things or whatever. I had them all audition their way back in to the performance to fit uh, with the content. So that was quite a learning process. And I had great mentorship from Dan and that avenue. And then we just kind of hit the ground running. And that became a, another iteration of a learning experience that was very different from fairs and festivals and cruise ships. And had I not done 407 shows, I think I did one year when I did, uh, I was doing the fairs and the cruises and everything. I had 407 shows one year. And if I hadn't gone through those boot camps where I was able to review, recalibrate, recreate, like consistently, I would not have been ready for keynoting because it's the complete opposite of that you book one or two gigs a month or whatever it is not three or four shows a day and then it's it's a much higher pressured situation you're probably in front of more people you have a greater production you have a greater expectation and you're there to deliver something that's not only entertaining but also has value and content that people are going to walk away with so luckily i had all that training from the fairs and festivals and street and all that stuff that came right to the forefront when it was then time to manage my energy and my content to, to deliver on the on the keynote side. Yeah, we've had Dan Thurman as a past uh, podcast guest here on Drop Everything. 
And he is the man. He fits being the motivational keynote speaker. And I think the same with you. I think part of your success is the fact that you always wanted to do it, that you're sort of driven in this direction as opposed to other people who are like, I want to do keynotes because that's where the money is, even though it's not organically what they want to do. I've always felt that this is exactly what you want to do. You want to entertain, but you also want to educate. You want to inspire. I think that comes from a very organic place. And also you have mad charisma. I think I always say that when you would go out and do something, like you would showcase or you would audition, I was never surprised that you got the gig because you present yourself very, very well in, in those situations. I wanted to talk about a, a media experience you had. Now, you're on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And how many people see that? Maybe six million or so. But you created a viral video that was seen by over 150 million viewers. Was that something that happened accidentally? Please explain what the video is and how that came about. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely accidental. We had no intention of that. And actually, the numbers are it's over 200 million now. It's like insane. Basically, what happened with that video is like it got uploaded by probably 100, at least 100 different people. It got shared and, on different channels and stuff. And there's one version that has like 140 or 150 million views. And then there's another one that has like 30 or 40 million views. And then there's like eight other ones that have like over a million views. It's Elijah. He was uh, two at the time. And uh, we just, we were beatboxing, or I was beatboxing to him and he was dancing in his high chair and it just, he was just in sync. And, and I think, um, again, the biggest intentions behind learning to beatbox was to create connections with people. And there's something that connects with people about the breath and the consonants and the vowels and just the humanity behind this particular um, musical art form. And we were just beatboxing together. He was dancing and then it just, blew up man and the next day like my wife cindy we sent it on facebook she she uploaded it and then got a message from a friend that says hey can you make this uh shareable and she okay sure and then the next day it had gotten over a million views and we literally got calls from fox news cnn ellen degeneres all these people were calling us i was like kind of freaked out about it i thought that I was actually nervous that there was going to be like a camera crew showing up at our house or something. And I was legitimately nervous because it's my kids and there's a difference between me getting the spotlight as a performer, which is what I'm seeking versus this tiny human who has no idea what's going on. And so I was, I was like, Oh man, I hope nobody like shows up at the house or something weird, but it, it went super viral. And then I actually started sharing that piece as a learning moment in my keynotes. And it was crazy because people would, I had never, you know, I'd done a little bit of TV and stuff, but nobody ever really recognized me unless I'm doing a, a cruise ship and I'm on the boat. And then people are like, oh yeah, you did the show last night, you know, in the elevator or at the right. buffet line, but nobody ever recognizes me in, in public. And, uh, and people started recognizing me based on that video. They're like, no way. Oh man, <laughs> let's take a selfie. I got to share it with my wife. So, uh, so that was a trip, very unintentional and uh, very interesting experience. Yeah. <laughs> so you weren't able to monetize it in some way. So you got 200 million views. You, you weren't able to kind of get five cents of view. And now you're a multi, multi-billionaire. Is that? No, no. Not, not like that. No, the, the Internet's much more complicated than that. It's it, we, we did monetize it a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other podcast to talk about uh, about the that that whole process and building your brand and monetizing properly and and things like that. But we, we got a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of, of, of something off of it, but nothing to nothing to, to buy a house with, no. Yeah, no, I've had Josh Horton on as well as another past guest. And if anybody has knows how to monetize the, the internet and YouTube, it, it's Josh Horton. But like you say, it's yeah. very complicated just because you got millions of views. But it does sound like you got some exposure from it. 
And now you're able to include it in your presentation. So it, it did turn out to be a very positive thing for you. Very, very positive. Nothing but good stuff for sure. I mean, and at the core of it, regardless of, you know, and obviously we want to get financial compensation so that it's sustainable for us. But at the core of it, the, you know, the video was such a positive ripple effect in the world that all of the comments were just dads commenting saying, oh my God, I, I want to connect with my kids doing this. And this was so fun and it brought happiness to us. We were having a rough day, blah, blah, blah. It was like all of the comments were like positive. And so it just had like a, to me at the core, again, like the motivate, the motivator in me, it just had a positive impact on the world. And at the end of the day, that was like so gratifying to just have that. And it's also something you can show your son in the future. Like when he's an adult, say, here's you when you were a little toddler and here's us sharing this moment that yeah, will help yeah. to uh, show your relationship to him uh, as uh, the father and son that you were at that time, you know, which is really nice. Let's talk about now about your current partnership, because at a certain point, you did a lot of solo work, but you teamed up with somebody. Why were you looking for a partner or did it just happen because uh, the person you found was so talented? Both. Yeah. I did a little too much solo work in my opinion. I mean, it's a, I would say I'm more on the, on the spectrum. I'm more of an extrovert uh, than introvert. I have a really strong introverted side to me where that's my composer and my creator and, and writer and things like that, but definitely skew on the extroverted side of the spectrum. For me, the solo life was very lonely and touring as a soloist and being in a hotel room at night by myself, feeding pizza and just like, it just wore me out, man. And I mean, this is, you know, this is 5,000 shows of that. This isn't like I did it for a couple of weeks or something. It was, this was for a span of some serious time. Um, out on the road, it just kind of got to me and I was seeking more collaborative artistic endeavors. And I built a couple of troops and things like that in, in LA. And then one of the individuals, uh, Aaron Dwayne Williams, who is my best friend and uh, soul brother, we actually met on stage at a TED event uh, in Hollywood, TEDx Hollywood. And he was doing a tap dancing routine. I was doing my beatbox uh, bouncing routine and we just became best friends. We met, we improvised on stage together. I saw him performing. I asked the producer if I could riff with him and he said, sure, go meet him. So I started talking to him. He would finish my sentences. We just got along right away. And he has a deep knowledge of music on a very deep level, uh, jazz, uh, classical, high information music, and uh, has gone the academic route with that, as well as playing a lot of different types of venues. And then, you know, I came with my kind of more rebellious, uh, self-taught, self-expressions, uh, music therapy kind of rock thing. And uh, we just became best friends and started performing together. And then it just kind of happened organically uh, to where we just had this connection. He also is an educator, a music educator. So he has a passion for working with young adults as well as adults and teaching. We do a lot of performing art centers and theaters. We also are doing some keynoting as well. It's just a, a, a beautiful relationship that's much more gratifying for me where, where I'm at in my career to have somebody to collaborate with, but also somebody to teach me. We're each other's teachers and each other's mentors. I have a skill set that I share with him and he has a skill set that he shares with me. And so we're constantly, both of us are lifelong learners and we're constantly uh, improving uh, and bringing out the best in each other. And you had a show this year at Carnegie Hall, is that correct? Yeah. If I'm remembering correctly, was it Carnegie Hall? That's that's very impressive. Yeah, yeah we, did a, we did it. We had some cool shows this year, man. Yeah, we were Carnegie Hall, New York. We were, we just, hey, a lot of cool things happened this year. And we're playing at the Kimball Center in January. We're super stoked about that in Philadelphia. And uh, it's just so cool. Yeah, we're, we're manifesting some good stuff, man. It's, uh, it's very fun right now. Yeah. And what's your work uh, relationship like? Is it something where you get together a certain number of times a week? Or do you just meet when you perform? 
How do you approach it? Do you approach it like a business? What's your daily yeah. schedule like? No, well, both things. Well, he's based in Los Angeles and I'm based in Atlanta. We're pretty far apart. So, um, but we do a regular phone call, Zoom meeting where we're, we're face-to-face on the, on the virtual platform. That's just kind of setting the groundwork for the week and kind of uh, foot soldier activities, just editing videos, putting stuff up, making calls, sending out emails, that, that kind of deal. And then as far as content-wise, we'll chat through stuff and then Honestly, we just show up and kind of do it. And I don't say that lightly. Like I I say that lightly, but I don't mean that lightly because we've dedicated a a lot of years to cultivating our our skills and we're both very disciplined. So we'll talk through something and then we'll show up and just do it like the first time because we're so disciplined in our our own personal uh, practice endeavors. So we'll just say, hey, we've got an idea for this. Okay, we're going to do a, this, this instrument, that instrument, this instrument, that instrument. We're going to throw it all together. We're going to do this piece. Okay, cool. And then one of us kind of takes the lead on it, and then we show up and do it. And it 99% of the time just kind of works out. We can work it from, uh, from being bi-coastal. That's pretty much how we, uh, how we do it, yeah. So I guess you could say you've worked very hard to make it look easy. Exactly. <laughs> there you go, brother. <laughs> Cool. Now, you're a very productive guy. You're a very accomplished person. Uh, You've written books. You've put out albums. Do you have any kind of maybe one or two secrets you can impart to our listeners about how they can have higher productivity? Any kind of tools or tips to help other people achieve as much as you have? Yeah, I would say that's a great question, bro. I would say for my lifestyle, for any listeners, you know, right now who have kids, oh, my God, it is just so hard to structure your day when you have a little kid. It is the craziest project we have ever taken on. Like it's nothing compares to it. It is so full on, man. So we have to work. My wife and I, Cindy and I uh, run the business together and she's an incredibly talented human songwriter, painter, writes tons of content for, for me, with me, for herself. She has a blog, Loud Motherhood. I mean, amazing human. We work together, but carving out the time and creating a, a system or a schedule uh, amongst the chaos and the full-time jazz of having kids uh, is very challenging. So my biggest advice is to create as much structure as you can if you have a life of chaos like we do. I think we're so focused on productivity in the sense of like getting things done, making calls, sending emails, doing the type A extroverted things that a lot of times we forget about the introvert reflective content cultivation side of things. And so for me, there's a real, it's the yin yang, man. It's the balance. It's the light and the dark. It's the up and down. It's the in and out. I mean, that is the constant contrast that I'm looking to find in my life, which is a magic ratio or the magic balance of that. Sometimes it's more extroverted, getting stuff done, updating press kits, doing video, blah, 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 blah. And then sometimes it's actually the the introverted things and the times where we're checking out and we're reflecting and we're meditating. Meditation has been a huge part of my life. And I actually just released an app uh, that's called Meditations That Don't Suck. So if there's any listeners uh, right now that want to check out, obviously, meditation music that doesn't suck, that you can go to meditationsthatdontsuck.com and, and go right to it. Uh, it's an app. It's totally free. It's a really cool product. But instrumental music, guided stuff, all kinds of things. But those eye of the storm moments where we're not actually doing anything in the three-dimensional world are so critical so that we can create that perspective, that alternate perspective of life. We can reflect on what things are working. Just like in the day-to-day, if you're doing you know, a lot of shows, you're reflecting on the shows and the content and the deliver, uh, delivery or, or whatever it is. 
And then you're reflecting on that, recalibrating or recreating. And the same thing happens in real life. It's like, okay, well, what's going on right now? Big picture, small picture, all pictures, reflecting on that and then saying, okay, how am I going to recalibrate or what am I going to recreate moving forward? And so I think those eye of the storm moments are, are really critical to actually chill out and separate yourself from the work. That could be going to an art museum and walking around. That could be going to the beach and chilling out. It's like, you know, our society is so tightly knit on like 10 more things to do to be ultra productive. And it's like, dude, <laughs> chill out, like chill out, go stare at the freaking squirrels playing in the backyard. And the greatest ideas are going to come. Those brilliant ideas are going to come in those places where we're receptive to that information, which is why people say the best ideas come in the shower. It's because you're chilling out, man, you know, and it's like when we're in that place of the warm shower or we're watching the birds play or we're watching the leaves fall or the waves crash. It's like those moments where there's something greater than us happening. We're just a part of this cosmic experience. I see that that thing actually isn't working. I've been doing that for 10 years. Why do I keep doing that? I should stop doing that. Or I should reach out to that person, reconnect with them or whatever it is. But those moments I think are the, are the real moments where we're retuning our instruments so that we can show up and uh, be an optimal uh, peak performance. Now you and Cindy have written a book together, BAM, Bold Achievement Method, which is a six step process for accelerated learning. And you have this, uh, the meditations that don't suck. And I like that because of the name kind of says it all, right? It's the meditations yeah. that don't <laughs> suck. Yeah, so let's, yeah, end the, yeah. let's end the podcast though with giving us some contact information where people can buy these products or find out more about you and your upcoming shows with Collision of Rhythm. Give us some, some ways for, to connect with Broncar Lee. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, brother. Um, with Collision of Rhythm, which is our live performance, that's our, you know, kind of cannonball splash into the world, extroverted, big energy, lots of different music and skills and, and, and live shows. That's uh, collisionofrhythm.com, collisionofrhythm.com. And we have a YouTube channel as well. If you just look up Collision of Rhythm on YouTube. And then uh, the Bold Achievement Method book is available. Bam, Bold Achievement Method is on Amazon. And then the Meditations That Don't Suck is uh, is available on uh, if you go to just meditations that don't suck dot com uh, that's uh, available to an app for your phone so you just just go in and uh, and find that so all of those are ways to get stuff and uh, keep in touch and hopefully this is served somebody somewhere with something <laughs> well thanks for being part of the drop everything experience I'm sure you've connected with people over the podcast and who can hear your energy hear your enthusiasm and See how you can go from a juggler and a, a street performer, ringmaster, to now collision of rhythm and a very successful keynote speaking program. Thanks for being on the pro the podcast. One of my friends a long time ago. We, we we spent too much time apart. You know, we haven't we've kind of drifted apart a little bit over these last years. But nice to talk to you again, my special guest, Mr. Broncar Lee. Thanks, Broncar. Thanks, brother. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast. Number 77, my conversation with the incredible Broncar Lee. Thank you, Broncar, and best wishes for an amazing 2020. All right, let's thank our sponsor one more time, the International Jugglers Association, the IJA. You can find out about the IJA at juggle.org. This year, the festival will be in El Paso, Texas. I hope to see you all out there this summer in El Paso. All right, go out and drop everything except when you're juggling.